So on Saturday night, March the 23rd, and Sunday morning, March the 24th of this coming year, Jewish people all over the world will gather together and celebrate Purim. What is Purim? Well, they will exchange food, drink gifts. Many of them will dress in outlandish outfits, do outlandish things. But on that Saturday night and that Sunday morning, they will read the entire book of Esther. You wonder, why do they do that? In fact, the book of Esther is the only book in our Bible that doesn't mention the name of God. Well, what I want to do today is do something that I've not done before, and I'm thinking this might be the craziest idea in the world, uh, especially since my voice isn't necessarily up to par. But I am going to preach through the entire book of Esther this morning. Don't panic. I've timed this. You'll get out of here in plenty of time for supper. <laughs> well, really, what I, what I hope to do this morning is, is really just, is, is best I can, just give you this text. So I am going to be reading a bunch of scripture that's going to be up on the screen, and it's just going to tell you the story of Esther. When it's done, uh, man, we could really camp out here for a long time, but when it's done, there are, uh, there are many themes that surface in this book, but there are three primary themes that I'm going to allude to, and, uh, and trust me, that won't be that long. So um, I, I'm just going to ask you today to especially, like you would be reading your story to your grandchildren or your children at night and asking them to lean into that story, I'm going to ask you to pay attention really as we read this together and lean into this story, and even as we're going through it, be asking God, Lord, what are you saying in this story? All right, so here we go. What is the setting or the context? Well, this story takes place in, in ancient Persia, the Persian Empire, when the king, King Ahasuerus, was on the throne in the citadel, the city of Susa, which is somewhere in uh, present-day Iraq, okay? So at this time, if you recall the history of Israel and Jerusalem uh, uh, and Judah, both of those nations had been taken into exile. And so many of them were, were living there in Persia or in, in what is now the, the country of Iraq, somewhere in there, but they were stretched out. They were scattered all over the Persian Empire. Now, the Persian Empire went from India all the way to the North African coast. So it was like 127 separate kind of entities there. King Ahasuerus was, uh, was king over all of those. But just keep in mind, the, the Jews are in captivity. Some, some have returned back to Jerusalem under Ezra and Nehemiah. So that's where we are in the whole picture of the Bible unfolding here. Some are back there, but most aren't. All right. Um, so what's the very first thing we find as we, as we jump into this text? King Ahasuerus uh, issues this edict so that he, he could have this big celebration across the, his, uh, uh, well, inviting all of his rulers, all of his main players to, to have this 180-day feast. I'm just going to read from chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. It says this, Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus, who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, 
In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Medea, and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. You see what's going on there? So for six months, he's got his, his, the big shots in there, and they're having a huge party. And at the end, he's like, man, we got one more week. Let's just open this up for everybody. And so for one week, they had this big party. And at the end of that one week, the king is going to do something that changes the course of history. He invites, he not only invites, he implores his wife, the queen, to come and show herself before um, his um, entourage. So here's what happens, beginning in verse 10 of chapter 1. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs, at this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. So we'll not read this part, but the king refused to, uh, to obey what the king had called her to do, and therefore it was decided, you know what, this queen has got to go, and she needs to be replaced. So that's what happens now. So the king is advised and he, he likes the idea that they need to have this beauty contest over all the entire kingdom and bring in all of these beautiful women and prep them for a year or more and bring them in one at a time to the king. And the one, the one out of thousands that the king really likes would become the queen to replace Vashti. At this point in our story, we introduce, or God introduces, the, um, the protagonist, the, the two really good people in this story. So I'm going to be reading from verses 5 through 7 of chapter 2. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai. That's one of the good guys, Mordecai. The son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So we see this guy introduced. His name is Mordecai. He's Jewish. Uh, his cousin, actually, who we assume was much younger than him, uh, her mom and dad died. And Mordecai takes her in and raises her as one of his own children. I will not read this. Uh, you could go back, and I would encourage you to go back and read this when you, uh, when you have an opportunity. But suffice it to say... Out of the thousands of women that are brought there, the king chooses Esther 
Now, it's important to also understand this. Esther is Jewish, and the king does not know that. All right, so this story is rocking and rolling along, and it's making kind of sense. You're into it. And all of a sudden, seemingly, out of the blue, there is an incident that occurs that uh, we need to know about. So just follow along. It's, It's sort of a random event that's recorded. Verses 19 through 23 of chapter 2 says this. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh Two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. So when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of Chronicles in the presence of the king. So this is sort of a random event. Uh, Mordecai is sitting out at the gate and he hears of an assassination attempt that is being planned by these two eunuchs against King Ahasuerus. Mordecai sends word to his uh, uh, cousin, the queen. The queen informs the king and these two guys are hanged on the gallows. They write it down in the, the log book and file it away for posterity's sake. Everybody with me so far? Are you you asleep yet? Please don't fall asleep. Now at this part of the story, we want to introduce the antagonist, the bad guy in the story. Verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3 says this, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman. Everybody boo, boo. Okay. Do you know, uh, when, when the, even to this day, when Jews uh, read Esther in the, in the night and in the morning on Purim, whenever they come to the name of Haman, the children have been given these little boxes with rocks in it or rattles. And as soon as they say the name Haman, start shaking it so you can't hear the name Haman. I'm just saying. Uh, so it's okay if we just booed. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. He disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy, listen, Haman sought to destroy All the Jews, the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So Haman, this guy, he's livid because Mordecai fails to bow down to him. So Haman decides not just to kill Mordecai, but to take it out on all the Jews. I just wonder if the other Jews, if there were others who were not bowing down other than Mordecai. We're not told that, but we're told Mordecai did not bow and it upset Haman to no end. 
So if you happen to confuse the names we've talked about so far, just sort of link Haman with Hitler. Both start with H. Both wanted to annihilate the Jews. So now we're going to find out, well, when is this annihilation supposed to take place? And it's determined it's going to take place on Adar the 13th. That's the calendar date. Verse, chapter 3, verse 7 says this. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur. That is, they cast lots before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Letters were sent, verse 13, letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. So you see what's happened here. Uh, Haman, is, they, they've, they've cast dice, they've cast lots, and it's come up on this day, Adar the 13th. And that's when, uh, they didn't call it in those times, but that's when I'm calling the final solution. The die had been cast. So here, Mordecai now, remember Mordecai's a good guy, he learns of Haman's plan. He hears about it. And he challenges his cousin, the queen. He, he, he sends messengers to the queen and says, Queen, here's what's happening. They're, they're designing to kill all of us, all of the people. The final solution. And he ultimately gets word to Esther. And he challenges her to challenge the king. But there's a catch. The catch is this. Anyone outside of the court who would present him or herself to the king, having not been summoned by the king, was subject to death. When that person appeared outside the, the court and wanted to see the king and came in, and if he or she, whatever he or she spoke, was not pleasing to the king, uh, the king would not hold out his golden scepter, and they would immediately sacrifice that person. This was very real, and Esther knew this. She knew that if she went in and presented herself to the king and he did not present that golden scepter to her, she was going to die. So messengers kind of go back and forth from, uh, from Mordecai to Queen Esther, back and forth, back and forth. And finally, and you've probably heard this, if you've never read anything else in Esther, you know of this. Um, Mordecai sends this reply, chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. He says this to his cousin. He says, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Okay, here's Esther's reply. Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So we'll not read this, but in chapter 5, Esther goes before the king. The king holds out the golden scepter. He receives what she has to say. And he says, what is it, uh, my queen? What do you desire? And she says, I simply desire to have a banquet, a, a meal with you. And I would also like to invite your second in command, Haman. 
And so that's what happened. So Haman's really all excited, man. He's got a huge ego. And he's, uh, he's going to go home and he's going to tell his, his wife and everybody about it. He's like really stoked. Man, I'm, I, this is really going on in my life. Can you believe this? So in chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, listen to what he says. Then Haman said, and he's talking to his family, Even Queen Esther let no one but me. Come with the king to the feast she prepared. And guess what? And tomorrow also I'm invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Here's this great idea. Let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman. And he had the gallows made. You see what's happened here. So uh, the, the king calls in the queen. What do you want, queen? Um, I want to have a meal. They have a meal. He says, okay, well, what do you want? And she says, well, let's have another banquet tomorrow. I want to invite Haman back uh, for the second banquet. Haman goes home, and he's talking to his family, and he's going, man, look, I, I'm kind of special, but I am still livid. This will not be good to me as long as that Mordecai lives. He doesn't recognize me. He will not bow down to me. He will not pay homage to me. And they advise him, well, just build a gallows and hang him. Kill him. Get rid of him. That's how you get rid of your problem right there. So that very night, as they, they build the gallows, and that very night, um, the king goes to bed and he can't sleep. He's having trouble. Any of y'all have insomnia? You just can't get to sleep. I know most of you are over 40 and you, you know what it's like, right? <clears throat> well, the king's probably over 40. He's probably in his 70s. Who knows? And he's like, can't, can't sleep. And he's like, um, man, I, bring me something to read. Help me fall asleep. Just go pull one of those books off the, the shelf, one of the, you know, chronicles of what's happened years go by, and let me read that. So um, he, they bring him this book, and he opens it up. And guess what he opens it up to? He opens it up to that account where Mordecai had informed the queen who had informed the king that there was an assassination attempt against the king. And he reads this thing and he goes, oh, wow, we never did anything to like reward Mordecai. And he's kind of scratching his head and he's going, well, what can we do to reward Mordecai? Again, this is the night before Mordecai is supposed to be hanged by Haman. And Haman, for whatever reason, just happens to be out in the king's court, just kind of walking around. And the king's like, I need some advice. Hey, who's out there? Well, Haman's out here. Hey, bring Haman in here. I'm going to ask him what we ought to do for Mordecai. Okay, that sets up chapter 6, verse 6. It says this. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, Well, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew. Who sits at the king's gate? Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman 
took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai, and he led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman, you can see him now, Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then as the wise men and his wife Caesarea said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Many places in Scripture we read of this. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty heart before a fall. Let him who stands take heed lest he fall. Well, here we go. It's banquet number two time, right? That's that's coming up the next morning. Haman, Esther, and the king to this banquet. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It should be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it should be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been so merely as slaves, men and women, I would, not have, I, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen, and the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? The word left the mouth of the king that covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Haman is hanged on the gallows that he had had built. The rest of the story, chapters 8, 9, and 10, is sort of icing on the cake. In chapter 8, Esther implored the king to save the Jews. And so the king issued an edict. Listen to this. The king issues an edict that is sent out throughout all of the Persian Empire that on the 13th of Adar, the day that the Jews were to be annihilated, the Jews had permission to fight and to kill and destroy all of those enemies that were going to fight against them. Many were killed. Many were annihilated. In chapter 9, we see that the Feast of Purim is inaugurated. Verse 20 says this, And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned 
for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. And finally, the very last chapter, a brief one, Mordecai goes from the gallows to greatness. It says in verse 3, For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all the people. There's a sketch. There's the story that's recorded in the book of Esther. Um, for time's sake, I was just going to kind of review all that real quick. I'm just going to take it that, that you followed that okay. Is everybody pretty good with that? You, you got the gist of this story? Uh, I hope so. That's the great story. Um, it could even make Netflix movie out of this, couldn't it? I mean, it contains everything that the world would want to read about or see. It contains sex, violence, drunkenness, vengeance, attempted genocide, classical antagonist and protagonist, ones that are liked, and the name of God is not mentioned at all, never. It would make a great movie for the world. So we're led to wonder, why is this book even in the Bible? The question we could ask is, where's God? Well, the name of God is not mentioned, but I would suggest to you that He is very, very present in these chapters. We can't take a long, deep dive today, but I, I want to just briefly hit on three themes that are very classic that surface here in the book of Esther. I don't have a watch or clock. Will somebody help me with what time it is right now? I know everybody probably will. It's 11 what? 11.25. Okay. 22. I got a 25, I got a 25, I got a 22, I got a 20. Do I have an 1110? Do I have an 1110? Anybody with an 1110? I got 11 o'clock right here. Okay. All right, let's just look at these themes real quick. The first thing that's very evident that, that's, that, that we should all pick up on is the providence of God. The providence of God. The doctrine of the providence of God is basically the idea that God, listen, God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he directs them to his purposes. Okay? To summarize, God did not just wind the world up and set it over here like a clock and stand by and just hope everything works out or just stand there and watch everything. Y'all, God is intimately involved with everything in life. There are no coincidences with God. Will you believe that? Will we get that through our thick hearts? There are no coincidences with God. Nothing is random. Think of just the story we've just read. Think of Vashti's disobedience and the need to be replaced. Esther just happened to be the most beautiful woman in all of the kingdom. Mordecai just happened happen to be in the right place when he hears about this assassination attempt. The king, listen, the king just happened to have insomnia the night before Mordecai was going to be hanged on the gallows. He just happened to read about 
Mordecai. This book is saying loud and clear, though we may not always see God, He, listen, He is assuredly working in our lives every second, every minute, every hour, every day, every week, every month, every year, every decade that He gives us life. He's working in a way that He is glorified and for His people's good. Do you believe that? I do. God's an amazing God. Listen, Kim and I would have never met and married had not John Hines and Anna Schmidt met and married in the early 1800s. And right now my wife is going, who is John Hines and Anna Schmidt? It sounds far-fetched, but it's plausible. Follow me. You see, John Hines and Anna Schmidt, they, they had a son named Henry who loved to plant vegetables in a garden. Eventually, he started a company. You ever heard of Hines Ketchup? That's who Henry Hines was. Well, my dad knew about Hines Ketchup. When he went for his prime job interview 65 years ago, he was going to be interviewed as a salesman for Park Davis Pharmaceuticals. It's the dream job that he wanted. He goes in, and he's meeting with the senior hiring officer, and the senior hiring officer asks my dad, what have you ever sold? And he's like, he's like racking his brain. He said the only thing he, he knows that he ever sold was like a couple of ads for the yearbook, right? So he's kind of like, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. He says, I know. I sold my wife on Heinz ketchup. It's more expensive, but it's well worth the money. And so he sold her on Heinz ketchup. He told the guy that story. And I'm lying. You tell everybody right now, Daddy. But uh, he was hired right then on the spot. He was then offered two locations. I can't remember where one of the locations was. It was some place that everybody had probably heard of. But one was a place nobody had ever heard of, Wilson, North Carolina. Well, he decides to go to Wilson, North Carolina. Eighteen years later, Lib and Ansel's son met a girl in Wilson, North Carolina. Fell in love, got married, lived happily ever after. All because... John Hines married Anna Schmidt. We laugh at that, but y'all, I share this to remind us all how God has been sovereignly, providentially working in our lives. Every step. Look, we look back and there have been mountains, there have been valleys, but God is there all the time and all along. His is a perfect plan. Why is it then, why is it that we can have so many doubts and so many fears in our life? We 100% look backwards, our hindsight is 2020. 
right? I mean, we look back and we just, it's very easy. God did this, God did, God, God's an amazing. And yes, there were valleys, and yes, there were peaks, and yes, there were troubled times, and there were sorrowful times, but we would never exchange any of that for knowing the glory of God. And he's brought us to where we are now. We look back and we see every step along the way God has ordained, God has providentially called us to that. And then we turn around and we look forward and our vision is 2,500. We worry about things what happens if such and such and this and that and we have all forgetness of who God is and what He's done. Some of you here today probably doubt God and His plan. You doubt, you're skeptical that Jesus is the only way. But I'll ask you this. I'll ask you this. What holds more weight that God, who has always existed, created man for his good and for his glory. Man rebelled, but God knew beforehand, and God provided a way to redeem back a people to himself. And he, he did this by sending his one and only son, who is divine before time began, who took on human flesh, became like us, fulfilled the law, was hung on a cross in our place, so that whoever would call on the name of Jesus would be saved. That, does that hold more water? Or does this? That all exists, all that we see is random. All that we see came about on its own. Just somehow along the line, somewhere way back, there was some kind of matter. Where it came from, we had no idea. Some kind of matter mixed with some kind of energy and poof, over billions and billions and billions and billions of years, all this stuff evolves. Y'all, if you believe that, you crazy. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just being totally upfront with you. It takes more faith, unbridled, step in the darkness faith to believe that than, it believe, than to believe there is a sovereign, all-loving, all-knowing, providential God who has this world in His hands and is guiding it all along the way. Some of you came here this morning, you're all twisted in knots, you're anxious about one thing or another. You can read about Esther and you how can we be anxious to know that God's got it in his hands? Well, for time's sake, let me move on to theme number two. What time is it? I'm going to get a watch next time, I promise. 11.32. And I got to quit by 12.32? Is that what? I'm just kidding. <laughs> theme number two, God is the great covenant keeper. God is the great covenant keeper. We don't have time to fully go into this today, but listen, we remember in Genesis, God makes a covenant with Abraham. Remember what he says to Abraham? He says, I will be your God. You will be my people. I will give you a land. I will bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. But listen, he says this. You know the next part? And in your seed, singular, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In your seed. You see, y'all, we can't just see the providence of God in saving the Jewish people here as, as sort of a subset, a, a generic act all of its own. It, it's God's plan with the purpose. What? What's he doing? He was saving the Jewish people. Why? Because through the Jewish people would come the Savior. Do you understand? 
If Haman's plan had been carried out, he would wipe out all of the Jews off the face of the earth, then there would be no Jesus. There would be no Messiah. But God knew that well ahead of time. He would bring forth the Jewish Messiah who Gentiles would be by grace brought, grafted in. His name would be Jesus. The name means the one who saves his people. And listen, here it says this. Whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That brings us to the a final theme, a third one. So we've got the providence of God, right? And then we got the providence of God as displayed in God, the promise keeper uh, of, of his covenant. The last one I'll touch on is this, the responsibility of man. Sovereignty, the providence of God. So you might have the idea, well, if God's working and God's sovereign and God's bringing everything to pass the way he wants to and God's going to do what he's going to do, then why do we need to do anything? Why do I need to pray? If God's drawing people to himself to be saved, uh, why do I need to evangelize? Right? Those are kind of questions we could ask. But there is a responsibility of man. It's true. God's plans will happen. No scheme of man can stop it. Just ask Haman. But still, God used human agency to accomplish his plans. What if Mordecai, listen, what if Mordecai had never taken action? What if Esther would have just chickened out and said, you know what, my life means more to me than going to inform the king. I don't know what challenges face you today, but I do know that God is working through all of it to work together for good. Those who love God, those who've been called according to God's purpose. So I'll just simply ask you this as a challenge. Look around you. What needs to be done? Who's going to take in the foster children? What happens to them? Who's ever going to sit down with the boss and share the gospel with her? Who's going to give so that others can genuinely go. Now, y'all, much has been made of this point. I don't want to belabor it. And you shouldn't miss the point that it applied first and primarily to Esther. But listen, Mordecai's question is very applicable to us today. Listen to what he says and think about him asking about us. He says this, Who knows? Whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Perhaps God has brought you to a terrible job surrounded by deadbeat people. Perhaps God has brought you to a relationship with an unlikely neighbor. Perhaps God at this very day, at this very moment has brought you to a decision place in your life, to choose life or to choose death. How do we know in those scenarios and many others that God has not brought you to the kingdom, to this place and this time for such a time as this? You know, Jesus says that no one comes to the Father except through me. And no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. 
So in a very sense, if you're on that edge of your seat and you're going, well, I've never committed my life to Christ, but I am compelled today. You know what? In a very real sense, you didn't, you didn't bring yourself there. God did. He has you there. But on another hand, the human responsibility all rests with you. Those who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's calling us to receive Christ, to turn away from our sin and ourselves, and to turn to Christ by faith and faith alone. Well, let's bow together and pray. Lord, it just simply overwhelms us to think of your providence. Oftentimes, we just cannot grasp it. Lord, we just want to simply believe. Father, in this, this moment of decision, Lord, perhaps we're just prone to worry. We're Christians, but we just worry about everything. God, I pray that right now that we would decide to simply trust you, give you our worry, and know that our foresight can be just like our hindsight. And then, Father, last, as we, um, as we just close, Father, chances are very great, and there's, <laughs> there's no chance, Lord, but there's, there's some people here today who've never given their hearts, their lives to Christ. They've struggled, they've wrestled. They've wrestled with the meaning of life. Lord, I believe deep in their heart, they know that Jesus is calling them today. God, it's our prayer, our collective prayer today that anyone here without Christ would simply by faith turn to Him, to call Him Lord, to repent of sin, receive His forgiveness, and be saved. Lord, that's Your, that's your business, not ours. So we give You praise and thanks in Christ's name today. Amen and amen.